Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Welcome to Vertical Life Church. I love saying that every week. Welcome. So many states are still closed down, and yet, like Dave said, we have the ability to gather and to meet. And there's nothing like meeting with the people of God. I know when we were shut down for two months, it was, you know, we managed, but when we got back together, we, it's like an epiphany. Oh, this is why we do this every week. It's just, there's nothing like gathering with the church, with the people of God. And so we welcome you. For those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. I want to say welcome to you today. We hope that this will be an encouragement to you. And uh, just to kind of catch you up to date, we've been going through the Bible beginning at the beginning, the book of Genesis into Exodus, now into Leviticus, going through and seeing the story we're calling the Great Romance, this story about how God loves his people and how he's preparing a bride for his son, for Jesus, to spend eternity with forever and ever and ever. And you and I are in this story. So we're going through at the beginning to highlight not only who this God of ours is and what he's done, but how it reveals his great love for you and I. And and what his word is telling us about how we can live our lives to live what Jesus called the abundant life. He said, I've come that you might have life and life overflowing or life abundantly. Our God is a good God. He wants to bless us. And when we live according to his will, the blessings flow. But when we follow our sinful nature, we follow the ways of the enemy or temptation, that fellowship breaks and his ability to bless us is dim. And so God has set forth things in his word. He says, if you do it this way, then I can bless you, and I want to bless you so that your life is overflowing. So much so that he called the church the light of the world. Because our lives are intended to be a beacon of hope to those who are without any hope. And so God wants to bless you, not just with salvation in heaven and eternity, but in this life so that your life can be a giant billboard that says, hope found here. Hope is found here. And so we're challenged in the word of God with some things. That our world would say are foolish, our world would say is not right, our world would say is backward thinking, but we're challenged with some things because ultimately at the end of the day, we have to decide who are we going to trust, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who is truth, who is love, who is life itself, or what the world or the enemy would have to say. Next week, we're going to take a pause in our study and do something fun. I always love uh, the Christmas time. My family has started calling me Father Christmas at my house because I'm a little overboard. I I don't think I'm that eccentric, but I do get really giddy at around Christmas time. Uh, We started watching Christmas movies already, you know, even before Thanksgiving had come. Uh, The lights were outside, they were beginning to be put up, and as soon as uh, my wife's birthday on November 14th was come, we started putting Christmas decorations up in the house. So this is is all my influence, and I praise God for that every day of my life. So, But we're going to start a new series called Presenting the Greatest Gift. And we're going to, it's a two-week series, and the third week will be actual Christmas Sunday, and we're just going to spend time, oh, the old-fashioned way, singing carols, reading the Christmas story, and just celebrating 
what God has done. I think there's value in remembering childlike things. Jesus said, if you want to come to the Father, to heaven, you must come like a child. And often we make things far too serious, serious as adults, and we get in our heads. And I think there's value in remembering the good old times and remembering what it was like to have that awe and that wonder as a child. And so we're going to do that on our Christmas Sunday. And so I will challenge each of you, if you so dare, to come in your Christmas best. Ugly sweaters abound. And uh, we'll be doing some fun things. Uh, our cafe, our bistro, is going to be doing the infamous hot cocoa bar. If you've not been a part of a Vertical Life Church Christmas, uh, we do hot cocoa right. And so that's something exciting to look forward to. So you don't, definitely don't want to miss. But uh, what we're looking at today, we're in the book of Leviticus. This will be the last message in Leviticus. We've highlighted several of the things in this book that God has revealed about the sacrifice, what Jesus has accomplished, his purpose. But today we're going to talk about kind of one of the biggest contentions there is with the Christian faith, with those who don't believe. And often many, even within different denominations of the Christian faith. And this stems from a lack of understanding as to why Christians today will say something is wrong or something is a sin found in the book of Leviticus or the Old Testament and then turn around and do something else that is also said is a sin found in the book of Leviticus or somewhere else. Uh, like the book of Leviticus has so many different rules and regulations that God commanded Israel. He told them, don't eat shellfish. That means shrimp is off the table, y'all. How many of you like you some red lobster, right? Or you go to the Chinese buffet and get the, get the all-you-can-eat shrimp. I mean, like it's, like it's go time, right? When, when you get there, it's like, yes, crab legs, yes, that's me. Well, let's go, get us some crab legs. Well, that was wrong in the Bible, in the, in the book of Leviticus. And so it, that was just as wrong as it turns out that he talks about other issues that are more weighty in our culture, like maybe how two people involve themselves in a romantic relationship or get, in, or get involved in intimacy. And so the world will look at that and they say, well, what a hypocrite, what a hypocrisy. This says this is sin and you do that, but over here you condemn this. And often we get caught up in this struggle because we don't even ourselves understand why things are the way they are. We, we don't understand why we actually believe what we believe. We just repeat what we heard someone else say that we trust. And we do stuff like this all the time. Right now, if you watch the news, you know that there's some stuff going on as it pertains to the presidential election. And we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of that, but you have one candidate that's been declared the winner, and the other candidate is filing lawsuits that is also declaring themselves the winner. And depending on which source you listen to or watch will determine what your viewpoint is on that subject. And guess what? I guarantee the majority of you haven't researched the details. You just took the announcer or the media personality's word for it. Right? You didn't, you didn't go look and see what all the different facts and figures are. You probably don't know that until December 14th when the Electoral College votes, that's actually when the candidate is officially chosen. Right? So there are things that are true in our world that we take on face value. We don't look at it ourselves. And we do this very thing with our very own faith. We say, man, that, that guy's a great preacher. And we binge their teaching. And we don't even open the scripture to see if what they're saying is true. 
And our culture, and namely the enemy, has been able to speak lies, deceit, dissension, falsehoods in the scripture to believers to get them caught up in what Paul called the behaviors and customs of this world. And yet he called us to be transformed and not caught up in the behaviors and customs of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says we need to take every thought captive and cause every rebellious thought that sets itself up against the knowledge and glory of God to take that captive and submit it to be obedient to Christ. There is an admonition, there is a call for every believer to know why they believe what they believe. Peter said it this way. He said, always be ready to give a reason for the hope which is in you in Christ Jesus. Know what you believe and why you believe it. So today, we're going to look at what scholars call an apologetical view of the covenants or really the law. And we're going to find out why some things are sin today and why some things no longer matter for the body of Christ. And I believe it's going to be an interesting study. We're going to reference the Old Testament law, namely the book of Leviticus. But when it comes to other things this book mentions, um, it'll fall under these categories. And so I want to give you the title of this message today. The title of this message today is, What Does Law Got to Do With It? What does law got to do with it? Got to do with it, got to do with it, right? What does law got to, somebody turn to your neighbor and ask them, what does law got to do with it? I'm glad you asked. We're going to find out today. Amen? Amen. All right. So the word of God tells us the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so we're going to rely on him to unpack the scripture to us today. Something we need to understand about the law, because we'll often hear this battle between God's grace and the Old Testament law, and, and it goes back and forth between this is okay because of God's grace, this is not okay, and we get caught up in just not really having a grasp of what is intended and what the Bible is teaching us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the something Jesus says is something very important for us to understand. Here's what he says. Because as we've been talking in this study, we've been talking about how Jesus has fulfilled the sacrifices, right? You remember how he's fulfilled his once and for all sacrifice. The reason why we don't offer animal sacrifices today is because Jesus is our once and forever sacrifice. Praise God. I like to eat the beef, not waste it, right? Right? I, I just, I, I'm a meat guy. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. That should make you pay attention. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So if Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law, then that means the law is still pretty important. Many Christians today don't even open the Old Testament because of the cross of Christ. They say God's grace has come. The Old Testament doesn't matter. And they couldn't tell you what the Old Testament even says. But Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. I came to fulfill its purpose. In Matthew chapter 5, 18 and 20, he continues. He says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even in the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. 
So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. If you ignore what it says, you'll be least in the kingdom. But if you fulfill it, you'll be great in the kingdom. But I tell you the truth, that unless your righteousness is greater than those who make a living, whose entire existence is to teach and live out the law, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you won't even get in to the kingdom. What are you talking about, Jesus? What are you saying? This is a telling statement. So Jesus has come to fulfill the purpose of the law, the requirements of the law, not even the smallest detail will pass away until it's completely fulfilled. That means there are multiple purposes for the law. If the law has not gone away with, with the coming of Jesus, then that means we need to understand what its purpose is. And there are many purposes for the law. God gave the law to Israel so that they could have a covenant relationship with God. God could dwell in their midst. They could have a way to have their sins covered. Paul says this in the New Testament, that it acted as a guardian for a period of time so that they could stay in God's good graces while they waited on the Messiah to come. There was blessing pronounced on the nation of Israel if they kept the law. So it was not just to maintain relationship, but it was also to bring in blessing. And the religious leaders, they kept the letter of the law to the best of their ability. But yet Jesus and the book of Isaiah declared that their hearts were far from God. They continued to follow their sinful nature and exploit their position for selfish gain. You remember the time where Jesus went into the temple and he turned over the tables of the money changers. It was the religious leaders that let the church or the temple, the dwelling place of God, be turned into a marketplace. They were exploiting the people using their religious significance or religious position to get rich while they oppressed the poor. And Jesus was not having it. And he turned over the tables. These religious leaders, they knew the law. They followed the rules, but yet they were still overcome by their sinful nature. And Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed that of the religious leaders. He said, the law will not be done away with until its entire purpose is fulfilled. What was the key purpose that Jesus is referring to? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, 19 and 20. He says, obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to what? What's that say? To keep people from having excuses. And to show that the entire world is guilty before God. To keep people from having an excuse and to show the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The Pharisees, the teachers of religious law, they kept the law to the T, the best of the ability that a human being could do. But yet it was not enough. Why? Because the purpose of the law was just, just to reveal how messed up we actually are. 
We can't arrive to the glory of God in our own power. We can't be good enough. You hear people talk when you ask them on the street, do you think you'll get into heaven? Most people will say, yes, I think if I die, I'll go into heaven. If you ask them, why do you think that? Their answer is because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Well, when you're comparing yourself to other people, it's easy to say that. But when you compare yourself to the glory of God, it's a different response. It's a different response. There's a well-known speaker and man who puts out videos on YouTube that I love to watch. His name's Ray Comfort. He's an evangelist. And he goes through this exercise with people to help them see their true need for Jesus. And does he go to the New Testament? No. Where does he go? He goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the Ten Commandments. And he'll ask them simple questions. He'll say, let, let me just paint this picture. Let's say you are standing in the court of law, a court of law and you are uh, standing f- uh, in front of the judge for the crimes that you committed. And, and let's just go through the Ten Commandments and let, let's see how well, if that's the measure of good and evil, that's the measure of standard that's going to be used against you when you stand before God. Let's just go through the Ten Commandments and let's see how well you fare. And so for sake of argument, let's do it together. Okay, we're all in this. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned, right? So let's just start with the first one. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. By show of hands, how many of you at any time in your life have ever used God's name in vain? Raise your hand. A lot of us. Probably every one of us. Well, the Bible calls that blasphemy. You know what they did to blasphemers in the Old Testament? They stoned them to death. It's a very serious crime. Let's try another one. Let's, thou shalt not bear false witness or lie. How many of you have ever lied in your life? Ever. Right? What do you call somebody who lies? A liar. Right? So if you've raised your hand twice now, by your own admission, you're a blaspheming liar. Right? There, we could go on. Like, how many of you have ever stolen anything? Even something very small. Raise your hand. Ever stolen? Well, now we have blaspheming, lying, thieving. Right? And the list goes on. We could go on and on and on. Because the nature of every one of us is to be a sinner. Well, if the standard of God is perfect, and just by your own admission, you've broken three of the commandments, you're a lying, thieving blasphemer, how good do you think you really are? Not very good. Not very good at all. So what are you going to do on Judgment Day when you stand before God? Well, God, I didn't break one of the commandments. Oh, that's all? You, you, you spared one. Okay, no. You're done. Right? That's why we need Jesus. That's why he came. Because it's this situation for each and every one of us. And the religious leaders, no matter how well they kept the law, they were still guilty of their sin. They still had to sacrifice day after day, week after week, year after year. Not just for the sins of the people, but their very own sins. And so God's call, Jesus' word to them, is that it's not enough to keep the letter of the law. You must have a greater righteousness. A righteousness you can never achieve. What's he saying? He's saying the law was meant to show you your guilt, not to save you from your sins. But I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Even though Israel was God's chosen people, they were without excuse because what did Paul say? The law applies to those the law was given. God gave the law to Israel. They had it. And even though they had the law, they could not be justified 
by it. The law granted them physical purity, a, a physical covering, but they went on in spiritual impurity. And what's interesting to note is that what Paul says here in verse 19, if we look again at Romans 3 verse 19, it says, did God give the law to the whole world or just the nation of Israel? When God showed up, did he say, okay, this is for the whole world, or did he show up on Mount Sinai to Israel? Who did he give the law to? He gave it to Israel, right? The law only applies to those to whom it was given. So when we're understanding scripture and we're looking at the Old Testament, we have to divorce ourselves from modern context and modern day and look at what actually happened in that moment. The law was given to a specific people at a specific place at a specific time for a specific purpose. God was using Israel as his poster or as his roadside sign for the world. We're all guilty, but redemption is coming. We're all guilty, but Messiah is coming to save us from our sins. So with this understanding, who was it that was required to uphold the law? It was Israel. Because that's who it was given to. And in the early church, after we get into the book of Acts, and you see how the early church began to grow, and the apostles were teaching. Many were coming to Christ. They form a new community. It was awesome what God was doing. Miracles, signs, and wonders happening. When you read the pages of Scripture, it's just like every day something supernatural happens. Like Paul's released from prison by an angel. Like he gets to walk through walls and something crazy like that. It's, it's just incredible what God is doing in those early days. But by the time the church has existed for a while and, and they begin to get comfortable in their new community, just like any organization, they begin to have some struggle, some trial. And there's some Jews who, again, are part of a, a people group who for thousands of years have been told, you must follow the law. Right? Put yourself in that position. You are, you're grown up a Jewish person in a Jewish family in the Jewish land your entire life, for thousands of years, you've been told, do not break God's commands. If you sin, this is the sacrifice. If you're going to eat food, this is how you wash. Here's the food you can eat. Here's the food you cannot eat. So on and so on. This has been ingrained in you since you were a young child. Yet when Jesus comes and he fulfills the sacrifice, many stop following those ordinances. And a lot of the Jewish believers had a trouble adjusting to the reality that who the Son has set free is free indeed. They had a struggle. You can imagine, how bad do people in church struggle when you change the style of music? Well, we've been singing hymns for hundreds of years. That's the way we always did it. Okay, well, there's something called new music. You know, let's, let's do that. Right? We, we struggle with even more insignificant things. Imagine being a part of a people group that believed one way their entire life for thousands of years. So they're having this struggle. They're, they're thinking, well, we've been told you got to be circumcised. You have to follow the law or you don't get into heaven. And they're saying, no, Jesus fulfilled that. You don't got to worry about that anymore. And there was this battle happening so much so, disunity erupted in the church and they were on the verge of a meltdown. And so they gathered this council in Jerusalem, many of the leaders, the apostles were there, the elders were there, many of the people, and they debated, and they prayed, and they wept together, they struggled through this concept. Until finally, in a meeting of the elders and the apostles, James, the pastor in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus, stands up in Acts chapter 15 and verse 19, and he says, so my judgment 
is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Again, the Jewish believers have been told they have to do this the whole time. Gentiles are getting saved left and right, and they're putting the law on the Gentiles. This is the core of the argument. He's saying we should not put or make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. What does James say? He's saying, for these Gentile believers who never grew up with the law, who the law was never given to, it does not apply to them. The law applies to whom it was given to. It applies to the Jewish people. So for these Gentile believers coming to faith, let's just give them an instruction that says, conduct yourself in this way. This way it guards and protects the unity in the church between both Gentile and Jew together. All of these laws that are listed here are found in the book of Leviticus. So what do these laws have to do with? They have to do with physical purity. Meat offered to idols, drinking blood, sexual immorality. The way one conducts one's life. And why is this the case? It's often because the way one conducts their life is a revelation of really what's going on spiritually. So they're saying, live a pure life, live a holy life, and in so maintain the protection and unity of the church. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul again is addressing this issue because now, rather than having Jews that are struggling with whether or not the Gentiles have to keep the law, now the Gentiles are saying, well, that means we have no rules and we can do whatever we want. We don't have to worry about sin at all because Jesus paid for all sin for all time. And in Romans 6, 1 through 3, here Paul says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Exclamation point. In the King James Version, it says, God forbid. Right? He's like, in modern terms, it's heck nah. Like, no way. Just because of Jesus and his sacrifice, that doesn't mean we just go on sinning. Right? Why did he die if we're just going to continue to live in sin? Why did he pay if we're just going to continue the same way? He says, since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? What he's saying is that before Jesus came, we were all dead in our sins. We had no choice. We were dead and impure spiritually. We followed the, through the law to be physically pure, but we could never be spiritually pure. So why, if we've now been made spiritually pure because of his death, do we want to go on living physically impure? If before we could just be physically pure but not spiritually pure, now we can be both spiritually and physically pure. Why, once we become spiritually pure, do we want to live on physically impure? It doesn't make sense. God forbid. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12, he goes on and says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, he's not saying those who make a mistake or those who mess up. We all mess up. We all wrestle with this flesh. We all have struggles to overcome inclinations of our sinful desire. He's saying those who live unrepentant lives, who, like in Romans 1, exchange the truth of God for a lie to justify their sin, not repent of their sin. He's saying those are the ones that won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Say, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, 
who worship idols, who commit adultery, who are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. This isn't the only list. He's saying, look, if you're saying, I don't have to live differently because of Christ, to use the law, to use what we know to be sin as a justification for your sin, to live in sin, it's like you have no part in the kingdom of God. You can't have a part in the kingdom of God and live an unrepentant life. Jesus died for sin, not to give us over to our sin, but to set us free from our sin. All of these things listed here are prohibitions found in the law, many of which are in the book of Leviticus. How does Paul have a reference for what is sin? Well, he has a reference by the very thing that was given so that we could know we are guilty of our sins. So the whole world is without excuse. It's the Old Testament. I look back at the Old Testament to see what God's expectation is so I know how to conduct myself in the New Testament. Verse 11, he says, it's a beautiful thing. After he lists all of these sinful conditions, all these behaviors that are prominent in our world, in verse 11, he says, some of you were once like that. Here's how the world lived. Here's how many of you used to live. But you don't live like that anymore. What happened? You met Jesus. You met Jesus. And Jesus changes things. He puts a new heart in you. A new mind. New desires. He says, some of you lived like that, but... You were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. But now you say, well, I'm allowed to do anything. What's that mean? The law doesn't apply to me. I can do anything. I can do anything. I've been freed from the requirements of the law. But Paul says, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. He goes at length in the book of Romans to say, whoever lives according to their sinful nature, is a slave to sin. I will not be mastered by anything, including my sinful nature. I will not give my body to be used as an instrument to serve sin. Why? Because Jesus has declared, be ye holy as I am holy. Be ye holy. So just because the law is fulfilled does not mean the standard of purity is any less than when the law was given. What is the standard? It's holiness. It's purity. The requirements of the law, the do all these things to capture the grace of God for your life, those are done away with. But the standard is still there. Be ye holy as I am holy. Be ye holy. Not just simple physical purity, but also spiritual purity. And all through the scripture, we can see that one cannot become spiritually pure who does not repent of their sin and turn to God. In Leviticus chapter 8, God commands Aaron the high priest, or really chapter 10, verse 8, he commands the high priest. He says, the Lord said to Aaron, you and your descendants must never drink wine or any alcoholic drink before going into the tabernacle. If you do, you will die. This is a permanent law for you. It must be observed from generation to generation. You, what's that say? You must distinguish between what is sacred and what is common between what is ceremonially clean, unclean and what is clean, and he must teach the Israelites all the decrees that the Lord has given them through Moses. Here he's telling the high priest, 
This is the top spiritual leader in all of Israel. Here is your charge and those who are coming after you. You as the priests of God must distinguish between what is clean and what is unclean, what is connected to God and what is disconnected, what must be venerated and revered and honored and sacred and what can be disregarded and dismissed, between what is unclean, which means foul, impure, or polluted, and what is clean, what is pure in a physical or moral sense. And Israel, as God's chosen people, his priesthood was to be clean, a holy people. Just as the sacrifices were to be without spot or blemish, God commanded the same of his people. Leviticus 11.45, he says, For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy, because I am holy. Holiness was God's expectation. And on and on in the book of Leviticus, he goes on about what sacrifices after they sin, would be given or be required to establish holiness again. Beginning in chapter 11, you have this description of what animals they could eat, what they could not eat, uh, what would bring sickness, how to deal with the sickness. In chapters 12 through 15, describe if a person becomes ill, if they have any bodily fluids or discharges or infections and were unclean, that were introduced uncleanness into the camp, how to take care of that, how to quarantine themselves. Leviticus chapter 17, he continues the food ordinances and prohibitions against eating blood because life is in the blood. Leviticus chapter 18, the famous chapter on sexual immorality and sexual purity, which is often used to condemn uh, different types of relationships in our world like homosexuality, transgenderism, sexual confusion, while at the same time is used to support these very behaviors through um, this argument that we're wrestling with today. These are where all this stuff is found. And it was with a specific purpose for Israel is to help them maintain purity and holiness as they enjoyed the presence of God. Now I want to show you something in the text that will bring context to this argument. Again, especially around the idea of sexual immorality. Because it's everywhere in our world. It is so prominent that it doesn't matter what station you watch or listen to, it's advertised as if it's just normal everyday behavior. And the Word of God has very specific things to say about it. Why does God care so much? Because it hurts you. That's why. He said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly, that you would have a rich and overflowing life. And these very things we can see to the issue of fatherlessness, abuse, abandonment, all these mental disorders, anxiety, depression, everything that's through the roof in our world, ultimately comes down to the fact of sexual immorality among the people. It's everywhere. Pornography, breakdown of the church, the breakdown of the family, all these things come against the very blessings God wants to bring on his people, wants to bring on our world. That's why God cares. Leviticus 18, 1 through 5, as people are arguing and saying, we don't have to worry about the law anymore because that was in Leviticus as a law to Israel, and so now we can live however we want to because that it doesn't apply to us anymore. Here's something we need to understand about sexual immorality in particular in the Scripture. In Leviticus 18, 1 through 5, remember, they had just come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They visited God on the mountain. God is now confirming His covenant. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. Do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or the people of Canaan where I'm taking you. 
You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations. Be careful to obey my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find what? What's that say? You will find life through them. God's purpose is that you could have a rich and satisfying life. It's like don't live like the way those people used to live. Don't live and conduct yourselves in that manner because it doesn't bring life. It causes death. Destruction of your relationship. Destruction of your well-being. Don't do it. And on and on in that chapter, we see him describe the very behavior that they conducted themselves in. He warns them not to live like the people of Egypt or like the people of Canaan. Do not imitate their way of life, which means they were presently acting this way. And he proceeds to list every type of sexual practice that is an abomination to the Lord. The issue of sexual immorality is not an issue of the Mosaic law. It's an issue of natural law. There's a difference between the law of Moses and God's natural divine order. See, before the law of Moses was given, the city of Sodom was condemned for its wickedness. Many of its sins listed in Scripture are its sexual depravity. The, in the law of Moses, um, there is the law of God, but we also see the laws of nature or, or God's laws of nature at work. And over and over again, as you read this chapter and you see everything that he's talking about, over and again you'll see phrases like, if you do this, you're going to violate yourself. You're, it's a wicked act. It's a detestable sin. It's a perverse act, which also can be translated as confusion. It's not according to God's divine will and plan. It's, it's a violation of nature or his divine order. When God created the world, he commanded everything to re reproduce after its kind. Dogs reproduce dogs. Cats reproduce cats. Whales reproduce whales. Trees reproduce trees. Flowers reproduce flowers. There are natural laws that he instilled to govern the earth. And anything that violates those natural laws is confusion or perversion. It simply is what it is. It's a distortion of God's original intent. And anything that perverts the natural laws of God is subject to judgment. It's subject to judgment. Leviticus 18, 24 through 30. Here's what he says. He says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Again, after all this listing of different issues. He says, don't defile yourselves in any of these ways. For the people I'm driving out before you have defiled themselves in all these ways. Because the entire land has become defiled. I'm punishing the people who live there. I will cause the land to vomit them out. You must obey all my decrees and regulations. You must not commit any of these detestable sins. This applies both to native-born Israelites and to the foreigners living among you. All these detestable activities are practiced by the people of the land where I'm taking you, and this is how the land has become defiled. So do not defile the land and give it reason to vomit you out. It will vomit out the people who live there now. Whoever commits any of these detestable sins will be caught, cut off from the community of Israel. So obey my instructions. Do not defile yourselves by committing any of these detestable practices that were committed by the people who live there in the land before you. I, the Lord, am the Lord your God. Did you see how many times he said, don't do this. Don't commit these acts, he says it over and over again. It's enough for God to say it once, but when he repeats himself, he's trying to get your attention. Saying these issues, they defile the land, they corrupt the land, they cause cursing to come upon 
the land. I want you to have life. This is not the way to life. And these people who are already engaged in this behavior have so corrupted the land that they live, they're now going to be vomited out. So here's a question for you. Did these people have the law of Moses? Did God come to Egypt and say, here's my covenant with you. I want you to follow these decrees and regulations. Did he go to the land of Canaan and send his prophet to them and say, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live holy. Did he do that? No, he didn't. He only did that for the people of Israel. He only gave them the regulations, the rules. What they saw, the other nations, were the laws of nature and operation. The Bible says that God has revealed his glory in the heavens and that it reveals his handiwork, that we're all without excuse, that we look at the glory of God every day of our lives. We see how the world operates. And by looking at the order of nature that God had created, they then perverted their own ways, going against what was natural. And even though the law of Moses did not apply to them, because it was not given to them, they were still judged. And God was going to use Israel to bring that judgment, much like God used Babylon later in history to come against Israel for their wickedness. God sent Israel into the promised land to cleanse the land from those that had brought in the spiritual pollution, the idolatry, the violence, and the perversion. So what does the law of Moses have to do with these very relevant issues in our day, like homosexuality, transgenderism, or sexual wickedness. The law of Moses has absolutely nothing to do with it. Has absolutely nothing to do with it. Because the law of Moses merely defined what God already established in the laws of nature. Laws that were in existence beyond and before the law of Moses was ever given. Again, the city of Sodom was destroyed before the law was given. These tribes of Canaan are about to be destroyed as the law is being given. And what's significant about this is that God told Moses before the Red Sea, before he brought them out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, he said, I've come down to rescue them, talking about Israel, from the power of the Egyptians, lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing of milk and honey, a land where they read this with me, where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. These were all the tribes that were living in the land that God's getting ready to take Israel into. The same people God said they're condemned because they have polluted the land. The land's about to vomit them out. These are the nations God was going to depose and destroy to cleanse the land so Israel could dwell there. Why is this significant? Because 500 years prior when Abraham was alive, long before Moses was ever even a thought in the line of Israel. God led Abraham out of Canaan back into Egypt because of a famine that had occurred. And God wanted to reassure Abraham that the promise that he made him to give him this land, this promised land, was still intact. In Genesis 15, 16, here's what he says. Again, 500 years before Moses. He says, after four generations of your descendants will return here to this land, to the promised land. For what? For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. God told Abraham, 500 years before Israel ever left the Red Sea, that there's a people who live in this land now. 
We're all sinners. But their sin is going to increase. It's going to become corrupt and perverse. And sooner or later, when the time is right, their sin is going to be complete. And the land's going to vomit them out. And at that time will be the time your people, your children, will get to go into the land that I promised. Before the law was ever even a thought, God was already casting judgment on these particular sins. When Moses was leading Israel, God was moving them from Egypt into Canaan because the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Hittites, and Amorites, at that time had become overtly wicked and perverse people, filled their land with corruption, perversion, violence, wickedness. They had no law of God, no Old Testament to follow, yet their sins warranted their destruction. Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is death. Death comes to us all because of sin. So why is, why is this significant? This is why Paul says people who, do not, people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who do not repent of their sins, but yet walk in perversion that violate God's laws. And even today, many use the law of Moses. They use the book of Leviticus. They use these books as a means that was used as a means to reveal sin, they use them as a means to justify their sin. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must repent and turn to God. Repent of your sin and turn to God. Trust in, in Jesus as our only means of salvation. Why? Because there's none righteous, no, not one. We can't get there on our own merit or our own goodness. Yet many use the law to justify their sin, to give themselves over to it, to continue in it. And many will come to churches just like this one. They will sing the songs. They'll quote the verses. They'll say amen. Because somebody at some point with a poor understanding of how the Bible works and operates, the story that God is telling us has told them their sin is okay because Jesus has fulfilled the law. And Paul said everything may be permissible, but not everything is good for you. There are some things that violate God's laws of nature that are not good for you. And Paul said those that violate those laws of nature are not getting into the kingdom. Those that try to justify themselves by the law, and not just any just sexual sin in particular, but any form of sin. When you say, this is just who I am, this is my identity, then your identity is not in Christ. You're not a new creation the old dies, and you become new when you're in Christ, and you become born again. Those that try to justify themselves by the law, by saying it no longer applies to them and are free to live however they want, they'll be believing that they're good enough. But yet, when they stand before God, it'll be a different reality. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is teaching. He is giving one of his most famous sermon talks ever, ever given. And he talks about the day of his return when he sets up the kingdom and everyone stands before the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, he says there are going to be some people that come and stand before him who are extremely religious. They, they, they have done many wonderful things in God's name. Many wonderful things, some supernatural things in God's name. But yet in Matthew seven twenty three, Jesus turns to them and he says, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's what? Laws. Another translation will say, you who work iniquity. This is self-will. This is saying, my will trumps God's. My way be done. My will be done, not God's will. Their religion was just propped up 
their self-righteousness. There was no repentance there. And there can be no relationship without repentance. How terrible to be a person to stand before God, to spend your entire life being religious and sacrificing, thinking you're on your way to heaven, for God to say, I never knew your name. I never knew you. And why did they never, why were they never known? It's because they never repented and turned away. It's not enough to attend church. It's not enough to give money in the plate. Repentance is first agreeing with God about your sin, saying, God, yes, I recognize I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. Saying what he has said is sin is sin. You're guilty. And then asking his forgiveness. And the beauty of God's love is he says, not only will he forgive you of your sins, but he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. When I say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. I don't want to do that anymore. He says, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I love you. And I'll help you. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to get a new heart. And there's going to be something in you. I know there's this nasty that keeps going the other way, but there's going to be something in you that's going to say, no, we're not doing that today. We're going to be holy as he is holy. We're going to change direction. Only when you're truly born again can a relationship with God be established. There are many who live religiously, but they lack repentance. Because of such, they also lack the saving faith that guarantees eternity with God in heaven. And one of the biggest arguments in this area is, well, the Bible talks about you can't wear polyester. You can't wear two garments that have two different types of thread mixed together. And that's in the same passage as all the stuff about sexual immorality. But you don't see any Christians avoiding polyester in the store. Well, I think a lot of Christians avoid polyester nowadays. But, but it's like that idea. Like they wouldn't care about someone wearing a polyester shirt, but they care about all these other things. Well, it's because it's the, the purpose of it. The exterior of the people of Israel was to be pure and holy. This is what the law was meant for, to give them a physical covering. Like God covered Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin rather than destroying them. Israel got a physical covering. And that wearing clothing not made with mixed fabric was a revelation of God's divine nature. You don't mix species of animals together. You don't mix cats and dogs together. You don't mix plants with things that aren't plants. You, you don't violate the laws of nature. This garment that they were to wear, this prohibition against clothing, was to reveal on their exterior what was supposed to have happened on the interior. To be pure and holy. Leviticus 19.19 19 doesn't, it says don't wear clothing made from different kinds of fabric, but it's not a revelation of that's a sin if you do this for the rest of the world. That was for Israel because that's the law that it was given to them. But it's likened unto the reality that Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 23 through 25. He says, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law, talking about Israel. We were kept in productive custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. So let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So faith in Christ is the way to be made right with God, not, not following the law. The law reveals our sin now. It's the purpose of it now is to reveal sin. But Jesus is our guardian. He's the one who takes away our sin. So this command against 
Paul yesterday was first introduced in the law, nowhere else, but yet these other sins, sexual immorality and the such, are, were talked about right in the book of Genesis. And anyone who violates the laws of nature, they would have been cut off from the people of Israel. Anyone who violated these prohibitions, in essence, would be cut off from the presence of God. And just as these other scenarios were given as violations of the nature, like mixed fabrics and so on, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul tells us in the church, he says, do not team up or be unequally yoked with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? It's the same concept, just in a spiritual reality. For them, it was clothing. Don't mix two different kinds of clothing together. For us, it's don't mix light with darkness. Don't get entangled with an unbeliever if you're a child of God. How can evil be connected with good? How can Christ, who is light, who is love, who is purity, be connected with sin and wickedness? It's against God's divine nature to be intermingled in this way. It was not designed by his divine wisdom or holy commands from the beginning. So again, God told Aaron, teach these people to distinguish between what is clean, what is unclean, what is sacred, and what is sinful. The first reason why it doesn't matter about polyester or these other commands, and it does about sexual immorality, is because it was first given to Israel. Number two, sexual immorality was not new in the law of Moses. It was merely recognized in the law of Moses. So again, those who disregard these laws and justify their sins only to abuse the grace of God will be mistaken on the day of judgment. So what does law have to do with it? Have to do with it? Have to do with it? It has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom is near. The law reveals our sin. It has everything to do with it, but not to condemn us. Because there is yet another law that was instituted at the time of Christ. The whole world was given the laws of nature. The nation of Israel was given the laws of Moses. But we, the church, are given the law of Christ. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, here's what it says. It says, share each other's burdens, and in this, in this way, obey the law of Christ. Did you know Christ has a law? Did you know there are commands for the church? What is his command? Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He sums up all the law of Christ together by summing up the two greatest commands. He says, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law. Somebody say the entire law. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are summed up with these two commandments. So everything Jesus came to fulfill are summed up in these two commands. Love God with everything you are. And love other people the way you love yourself. You don't deny yourself the best portion at the buffet table. Right? If you're at CeCe's Pizza, anybody remember CeCe's Pizza? A few of you, yeah? CeCe's, all you can eat. It's not, I always used to say this about CeCe's. It's not quality, it's quantity. It's probably why they're not in business anymore. But at CeCe's Pizza, they had these cinnamon rolls. Can I get an amen, anybody? And it was, it was like... 
Lord of the Flies when that tray of cinnamon rolls came out. I mean, every time they put a fresh thing of cinnamon rolls out, it's like the whole place would get up and like, go get a cinnamon roll. And if you had the last one there, you, you worked a little quicker, you know, to get there before the, the other three little kids that were trying to beat you there. I don't care if I'm a grown man. I'm getting it. Kids can wait. Now, I'm eating me a cinnamon roll. But why do we do things like that? It's because we love ourselves. We prefer ourselves. Don't cut me off on the road. Why? Because I'm driving. Because I'm thinking of myself. It's the last piece of pie at Thanksgiving. Nobody's looking. Don't mind if I do. Because I'm thinking of myself. You know, there's so many ways we think of ourselves. Why? Because we really love ourselves. We love ourselves. What would happen in the world if we stopped loving ourselves so much and we started loving other people the way we love ourselves? Anybody want the last piece of pie? Well, you should have it. Oh, you want the cinnamon roll? Okay. Oh, you're in a hurry more than I am? All right, let me let you in. I'll slow down so you can get over. I know you're riding my butt. Let me get over on the side and you can get in front of me instead of me purposely going slower to make you even more mad. What if we started loving other people the way we love ourselves? These are the two greatest commandments. And Jesus says the entire law. What's the entire law? It's the laws of nature. It's the laws of Moses. And it's his law of love. The law of liberty. It's fulfilled in these two commandments. Love God with all you are. How can you love God with all you are if you're still trying to worship your sin? You can't. You can't. How are you trying to love God with all you are when you're trying to justify your sin? You can't. So love him. Repent. And what do you find? You find life. We're giving you these laws and decrees that you might find life. He wants life and life more abundantly. Life overflowing for you. It's not to ruin your fun or tell you you can't. It's so that you can find the better he's prepared for you. That you might have life. Don't sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you're married. Why? So you can have life. So you don't put your kids through a, a circumstance they were never meant to endure. That you can have life. I want good for you. I want life for you. Why? Think about this. This is, was so revolutionary when I first heard it. Why are the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments? If love fulfills them all, think about this. Why is lying wrong? Is it because God said not to in the Ten Commandments? Most of us would say yes. But it's not true. Lying was wrong before the Ten Commandments were given. Why is lying wrong? Because lying hurts the person you lie to. And hurting someone is a violation of love. Why is murder wrong? Is it because it's in the Ten? No. It's because murder hurts the person that you harm. It's a violation of love. Everything God has said not to do is a violation of love. So what if we lived in a world where no one violated love? It'd be heaven on earth. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you might have life. Not just the law of Moses, but the entire law is fulfilled in these two commands. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other as I have loved 
you. Love each other. Don't just love each other. Love each other the way I loved you. We get love each other. We don't get because the way I loved you. How did he love us? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Love each other. But don't love each other the way the world loves. Don't love the way you do it naturally. Love the way I loved you. I forsook myself. And I gave it all. So you could have life. You should love each other, and your love for one another will prove to the world you're my disciples. The law of Christ, the law of liberty, is the law of love. And for those in Christ, we are responsible for loving God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, especially those of the family of faith. It is the greatest testimony to the world, and all of God's laws are built on these two commands. Do we need to worry about polyester or washing our hands a certain way 10 times before we eat? Do we need to worry about sacrifices? No. Because spiritual purity is impossible through the law. And all the regulations of Moses, were, they were given to Israel for a specific purpose, not to the Gentiles. Though the laws of nature are still in effect and they apply to all creation, the law of the church fulfills it all. Love God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's fitting that this holiday season, we take time to focus on brotherly love as we direct our thoughts to the one who has shown us the greatest love. As God sent Jesus into the world, and we take time to thank him for loving us. So what's law got to do with it? Everything. Because it's based on his love. It's based on his love. And oh, how he loves you and me. It's a song we used to sing in the worship team all the time called How He Loves Us. And it often still wrecks me when I just think about the love of God. So no, God is not this mean man upstairs who's bigoted and biased and hateful. God, like a good father, knows when you're about to hurt yourself. And he knows the things in your life that are going to bring harm to other people. And he says, don't do it so that you could have life. And you could have the best life in a broken world. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we turn our attention to respond to the Lord. And I don't know what's going on in your life today. I thank God that you're here. I thank God for his mercy and grace. And I thank God that we belong to a church that part of our culture is that we want to be driven by love. That it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been. That God's love for you is just as great today as it was yesterday. And I thank God that he died on the cross. You know, we celebrate communion to center our thoughts on the greatest gift, the gift of the blood of Jesus. 
And without that sacrifice, we'd still be lost. Those of us who are not Jewish by nature were Gentiles. We were outside of the covenant. We had no knowledge that salvation was even a thing. Until Jesus came and opened the door of faith to the whole world through the nation of Israel, we had no knowledge. We'd be lost, and many of us would die and go on without even understanding there was a God who could save. And so I thank the Lord that he sent Jesus on our behalf. And I'm so thankful that even today, the scripture says his mercy is new every morning. Because you know, none of us are good enough to become perfect on our own. None of us are good enough. Doesn't matter how much we volunteer or how many good things we do, we'll never get there in our own power and our own strength. So Jesus came and he did what we couldn't do. And then he rose from the dead to release that power so that we could become righteous. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You can become, through Christ, what you could never become on your own. And that is forgiven, that is cleansed, that is clean. That is holy as he is holy. And not through any of your own effort, but because of the work that he did on the cross. And so even though there are things we wrestle with today, there's still provision. There's still power. The name of Jesus is still bringing breakthrough into people's lives. There are things we wrestle with and will continue to wrestle with in a broken world. But God's name, the name of Jesus and his blood is more powerful than anything we can come against. So for the next few moments, wherever you are today, Maybe you need to begin a relationship with God. There's never been a time in your life where you recognized and just verbalized to God, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. And I know that if I were to die today, I'd have to pay for those sins. And I, I need help. I need a Savior. If that's you here today, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer right here, right now, that you can pray before God. The Bible says... In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart, God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There's a promise that right now you can receive the life-changing power of God in your life. Your sin can be forgiven. You can become born again. You can become a house of God by simply praying a simple prayer of faith to the Lord. So for the next few moments, that's what we're going to do. If you've never called out to the Lord, you want to begin a relationship, you want to get to that place where if you were to stand before God, it would not be, I never knew you. It would be, come enter the joy of the Lord. And right now, where you are, just quietly, even in a whisper, pray this to the Lord. And say, Father, I'm sorry. For my sin. And for the things that I've done. That I knew were wrong. And even the things. I never knew about. Please forgive me. And thank you. For sending Jesus. To pay for my sins. On the cross. I accept. His sacrifice. On my behalf. And I put. All my faith, all my trust in him. I believe 
You raised him from the dead. And I thank you for the promise that today, because of my faith in Jesus and your unfailing love, I'm raised with him in Jesus' name. Father, fill me with your spirit. Give me a new heart as I dedicate my life to live for you now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. If you prayed that prayer, I just want to say a simple prayer for you. I'm not going to call you out or make a spectacle. But if you prayed that today for the first time and you accepted Jesus in your life, would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, I prayed. And I just want to say a blessing over you. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Lord God, I just thank you in Jesus' name for those that raise their hands. God, your word says that there is a party in heaven being thrown right now when one sinner turns to repentance, God. And we just celebrate that this morning. God, I pray right now your presence would fall, that your love would so fill their heart. God, that they become aware of your presence right now and your great love for them. Lord, I thank you, God, that we get to have a seat at the table when you're changing hearts and lives. And I just pray over these lives that you would guard and protect, God, that you would guide, that you would begin to change their legacy right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray for uh, just wherever they are in their life, God, whatever they're struggling with, Lord, that the enemy's hand would be broken off right now. God, and your Holy Spirit would just flood them with joy, with life and love in Jesus' name. And God, we so worship you this morning. We praise you. And I thank you, God, for your goodness. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's all stand together as we sing. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.